On August 1st, 1989, Ronnie Jack met a man in a pub in Prince George, British Columbia. The man promised Ronnie and his wife Doreen a job. They packed up their two sons and left with this man in hopes of steady work. They were never seen again. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. You may have looked at this episode in your feed and had two thoughts. First, it's a short episode, and it is. And possibly you were thinking that we already did an episode on the Jack family. There's not a lot of information on this case, which is why it was initially part of our Highway of Tears two-parter back when this show was still in sight. Unfortunately, those episodes and a few others were removed from the feed due to content quality issues. So I have been working behind the scenes on a new Highway of Tears episode. I did not write the bulk of those episodes when the show was in sight, so I'm starting fresh. And I've already found information on cases and victims through the newspaper archives that wasn't actually included in the original series we did through Insight. I am really looking forward to bringing that to you this fall, but it will focus on the official e-panelisted cases, and that does not include the Jack family. I was initially taking this week off due to a vacation, and some of you on social media already know that, but I had an opening on my schedule And with the 30-year anniversary of this disappearance being in a few weeks, it seemed like a really great opportunity to get the story back out there. I know the family is trying to get the story out there. I wrote this portion of the old Highway of Tears episodes, so it is all my work. And there were no barriers to rewriting, re-recording, and re-releasing it. This story is about a family, and it's not unlike the Jamesons or the McStays, who are two well-known family disappearances and murders. We have Doreen and Ronnie, and their two boys, Russell and Ryan. Unlike the McStays and the Jameson families, the Jack family has not been found. Doreen Jack, the mom here, her story is so sad start to finish. Much of what we know about her life, we know because her sister Marlene has spoken out about the abuse she and her sister suffered, and she has become an advocate in recent years, not just for her sister's case, but for the injustices done to First Nations people in Canada. She is shining a light in some pretty dark corners. And to do so, she has to share some of her most painful memories very publicly. The sisters grew up in Burns Lake, British Columbia, which is about two and a half hours from Prince George. So for those unfamiliar with northern British Columbia, it is a lot of rural towns and a few cities. Prince George is almost like a capital city in that northern part of the province, because it has a population of 70 to 75,000 people. It is where most of the amenities are for those more remote communities and villages. 
Burns Lake has around 1,700 people, so very small, and there are six First Nations groups in the area. So for a young First Nations family, Doreen and Marlene were surrounded by their culture initially. When Doreen was six and Marlene three, their mother left. It could be said she fled more than left. Their father was an abusive alcoholic, and their mother left after a violent confrontation. She never came back for her daughters. Doreen was born in 1963, and we've talked about the 60s scoop in the Betty Osborne case. This is what happened here. Doreen and Marlene were removed from their home in Burns Lake, surrounded by their culture, and sent to a residential school about an hour from their home. Because the main goal of these schools was complete assimilation, the sisters were separated from each other in an attempt to break their bond. Breaking their bond was part of breaking bonds to family and tribe, which were viewed as holding the children back from entering white society, basically. The girls would be forcefully separated if they were found off in a corner chatting. And like at all residential schools, they were expected to assimilate religiously with their language, with their dress, with their appearance, with everything. You might think, well, their dad was abusive and allowed drunken men to come in and out of the house. Marlene has said Doreen would protect her from these men when they were just girls. And little girls shouldn't have to fight off grown men. So how much worse could it be at the school? They weren't safe at home, so how bad could the school have been? Well, let's look at it this way. The girls were subjected to similar abuse in both places. Not better or worse abuse. All abuse and all very bad. These poor children had no safe place in this world. Something Marlene pointed out in her testimony at the 2017 National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls that really stuck with me is that the residential school stripping that identity from First Nations children stays with them. It isn't like they get culturally removed from their roots. They get removed from themselves. They lose who they were and how they learned to interact with the world. She said many kids coming out of these residential programs were so stripped down that they didn't really care much about themselves or what happened to them because they were so detached and they were so broken. They spent six, seven, eight years hearing about how they were worthless, how their culture was backwards, how their language was ugly, how their families were terrible. When you're a child, you just don't leave school and get over that. I'd argue that when you're an adult, you don't just leave an abusive relationship and suddenly you're over it. This is damaging. As teenagers, Marlene and Doreen had both gotten out of the residential school, but Marlene was sent to live in a group home for a period, and Doreen was attending secondary school in Prince George. When Doreen was about 17 years old, she was raped and became pregnant. Her father kicked her out of the house for being pregnant, and without a steady roof over her head and a baby on the way, and 17 years of trauma behind her, 
she was forced to drop out of school. She had no way of surviving and going to school at the same time. The only path out of this situation through getting an education was gone. In 1980, she gave birth to her son, Russell, and her father softened at some point, letting her and Russell move back home. She had nowhere else to go. But this situation didn't last long because her father died just two or three years later. So Doreen was about 20, Marlene was about 17, and they could barely support themselves, let alone a toddler. So they set out to track down their mother, the only close family member they had left. They hadn't seen her in about 14 years at this point. And honestly, when I first read Marlene's story about the circumstances of her parents getting in a fight and her mother leaving, I actually thought her father had killed her mother and covered it up by telling people she left. But he hadn't. She actually did leave, and the sisters did find her. She was living in a motel about four hours away from Burns Lake. And when her daughters made contact, she made it clear she had moved on. She did not want to see them again. At that point, Doreen and Marlene split up, both trying to find their way through this world alone. They weren't in touch as much for a bit. Their lives were becoming complicated. Marlene was living on the streets as an older teenager, doing what she had to do to survive. Doreen was struggling to support a young child on public assistance and with virtually no family support. But after a bit, Doreen told her sister about a new man in her life, Ronnie Jack. So soon Doreen and Ronnie were a family with little Russell, and they were expecting another child. It was another boy. They named him Ryan, and he was born when both Doreen and Ronnie were 22 years old. But this pattern and cycle of abuse continued And Doreen told her sister about Ronnie's physical abuse. Marlene would eventually witness an incident of this type of abuse. And what struck her was how Doreen just sort of shrugged it off, as though it was just part of life. Since she had been abused her entire life and watched her father abuse her mother, she experienced abuse at the residential school. It's no wonder why she thought... This was just part of how people interacted. It was quite literally the only way she knew people responded to anger. But I don't want to paint this like Doreen was a dark, depressed shell of a person. Marlene says she was laid back. She liked to have fun. She found joy in the world, in little things. Maureen told of a time Doreen and their uncle were seeing who could get somewhere the fastest. And Doreen won only because the uncle was pulled over for speeding. So when Doreen passed her uncle, who was pulled over on the side of the road with a police officer there, she honked and laughed. She was triumphant in this win. She loved her family. She adored her two little boys. And she was always hoping to make a better life for them. I don't know a lot about Ronnie's background. He was from the same area, and he was also First Nations. He was very close to his family. 
especially his mother. Much of what we know about Doreen, we know only because Marlene has testified publicly about her shared experiences with her sister. But I am going to guess that Ronnie's upbringing would have been similar in a lot of ways. Because of the limited educational opportunities in that area at the time, it's almost sure he also went to a residential school. So that's the background of what we're walking into. In August of 1989, Ronnie and Doreen were both 26 years old. They were raising Russell, who was nine, and Ryan, who was four. They lived in poverty. They had difficulty finding steady employment with their limited educational backgrounds, and they could only make ends meet with welfare benefits. They didn't own a car, and that's probably part of why they lived in Prince George rather than closer to their families and communities in the more remote areas of northern British Columbia. Not having a car in Prince George still allowed them to get around a bit and find a way to get to and from work when they could find it. On August 1st, 1989, Ronnie met a man at the First Leader Pub in Prince George. Witnesses later described to the man as a bearded 35 to 40-year-old white man who was over six feet tall. He was described as hefty but not fat, and he sounds like he fit the image of a logger. He was even wearing a red checkered shirt, jeans, and work boots. Ronnie was seen leaving the bar with the man, though the time is unclear to me from what I saw. It would have been late. It would have been nighttime. They went back to the Jack family home where Doreen was with the boys. This man offered Ronnie a job working as a logger at a camp out near Klukas Lake. And if I said that wrong, blame the news anchor I copied. Klukas Lake was about an hour from where the Jacks lived. He also offered a job to Doreen. She could assist the camp cook. The family didn't have a car to commute back and forth, so they would stay at the camp for the duration of the job. They would be back in time for the kids to start school that fall, which they were enrolled in. The couple decided on the spot to take this opportunity, and Ronnie called his brother at some point this night to see if the kids could stay with him, and he said that wasn't possible. It wasn't going to work out. When Ronnie called his mother around 1.30 in the morning to tell her about the opportunity, the plan had changed a bit. The man told them there was daycare at the camp so the kids could actually come along. Ronnie and Doreen could work and not have to live apart from their children. Ronnie said they only expected to be at the camp for 10 to 14 days. For a young family living in poverty, steady work for any period of time for both parents was really too good to pass up. Ronnie's mother was under the impression that the family was leaving right away and that this man was driving them out to the camp. And this was the last anyone has ever heard from the Jack family. Over three weeks later, they were reported missing when they hadn't made contact again. 
Doreen's family, who she was in touch with, seemed to mostly just be Marlene, and they would go periods without contact due to life circumstances. So Marlene wasn't alarmed. Ronnie had told his mother they'd be gone upwards of two weeks at this remote logging camp, so she didn't expect to hear from him until he got back. So after 14 days, she waited for a phone call. She didn't get one. So a week later, no one had heard from them, so she called the RCMP. So the RCMP is starting their investigation with a three-week cold trail. The information Ronnie gave to his mother was vague. He told her about where the camp was, but not the name of it. He didn't tell her the name of the man. No one at the bar saw what vehicle the man was driving. The pub was a short walk from Ronnie's house, so it's possible they walked away from the pub and didn't get into the vehicle until much later, when possibly no one was around. Marlene later said that she was told by investigators not to talk to the media about the case, or else they wouldn't give her updates. She felt pressure to keep quiet, even though she thought more media attention on this case might help generate leads. It's also possible that RCMP initially believed the family left willingly, having cut ties with their families, or possibly they were just staying at the job longer than expected, or this job led to another job, which often happens and was probably what the family was hoping for. So they went from this job to the next, and they would eventually make contact with the family when they could. So there's not a lot in the newspaper archives that I could find until February of 1990, which was six months after the disappearance. Crime Stoppers posted a $2,000 reward for information about where the family was. It mentions Ronnie Jack's mother, who he was very close to. She had been putting posters up in town looking for information. And this is really the first indication we have that the investigation was not looking at a family that willingly was away at work. A check of the family's phone records didn't give any leads. But what it did show is that before August, when Ronnie left with his family, he called his mother several times a week. He was always in contact. So now here we are six months out with absolutely no contact. It was pretty clear the family wasn't staying away voluntarily. Another clear indication of this was that the family left most of their belongings behind. They only took what you would expect for a couple weeks away. And that was consistent with what Ronnie told his mother. This wasn't a family with some nest egg to start over with. They needed their belongings. It was literally all they had. They were also receiving welfare benefits to make ends meet and did not use or apply for benefits after they went missing. So how did this family with absolutely nothing start over without issue? Obviously, that's not what happened. In 1992, the Native Friendship Center in Prince George began raising money to put into a trust. They wanted to increase the Crime Stoppers reward, as well as pay for newspaper and television advertisements asking people to come forward with information about the family. 
So then let's fast forward to January 28th, 1996 at 8.33 in the morning. That was very specifically reported. And the tip that came in was pretty specific, but also a little vague. It hasn't led anywhere and it may have been a hoax, but a man called police on this day at that time. He was anonymous. The call was recorded and it lasted all of three seconds. And it simply said, the Jack family are buried at the south end of Gordy's Ranch. In 1999, the newspaper articles discussing the case being the 10-year anniversary of the disappearance, they actually said that the Gordy's part of that sentence was unintelligible. Then a few months later, a different paper said that it either said Gordy's, Cordy's, Corey's, something like that. This three-second tape was the biggest lead they had, and it may have said Gordy's, but it may have said Corey's. They brought in experts to clean it up. It was just very difficult to understand. So, of course, I wonder about the hoax angle, but police did take this tip and investigate. A spokesperson for the Prince George RCMP said that they believe someone had a guilty conscience, and that spurred them to call the police. They were successful in tracing the call. It led them to a home about 45 minutes from where Ronnie had grown up. But they found out that at the time the call was placed, the resident of the property was hosting a party. And this has been verified. There was a noise complaint called in about the party. So we know this isn't just a misdirection. He wasn't just claiming there was a party. There actually was a party there. They interviewed as many people as they could who were at the party but they still couldn't identify who called. But like I said, this tip was taken seriously and investigated. The RCMP went out to Gordy's ranch, and there is some indication that they focused on what they thought was the Gordy's ranch. Their search of the property, though, yielded no clues. There are other ranches known as Gordy's or Corey's or whatever, And it may even be a ranch known by that name that's only known by the locals by that name. It's got a different official name. Or maybe the caller said something that wasn't Gordy's. Maybe they did say Corey's. With this muffled audio, we just don't know. And I imagine the caller may have been attempting to mask his voice. So the Gordy's may have just gotten muffled in that masking. It's just one of those things we don't know. Then in an article from August of 2018, so last year, the 29th anniversary of the disappearance, the RCMP said that there was another tipster they wanted to talk to. The information this tipster had had been given to a third party by phone and by mail, and this third party handed it over to investigators. Now, the RCMP wants to talk to the original person. They believe that this could be a fresh lead and they need some answers. They need to ask this person something. We don't know what it is because they said it would compromise the investigation to reveal what was in that tip. And as curious as I am, of course, I respect that. I think what we can take from this, though, is that this three decades old case is still getting tips coming in and the RCMP is still following up on them. 
a spokesperson from the RCMP made it clear that they think there are people out there who know what happened. People who may not have been involved, people who may have just heard someone else say what happened, those people need to come forward. They need to listen to their consciences and come forward. What exactly happened to the Jack family when they left their house is open to speculation. The only thing that has been completely crossed off the list is that they are staying away voluntarily. That's not what happened. So with the options we have left, the most benign explanation is that they were driving at night in a rural area with thick forest, and the man driving had been at the bar for a while. If they had a drunk driving accident and went down an embankment, the overgrowth would have hidden the vehicle pretty completely. It would have swallowed it. Those areas are so remote and densely forested and not traversed very often. That said, the biggest issue with this is that we have a missing family reported missing, but we don't have a corresponding logger also reported missing. No one from any logging camp had been reported missing in that time. This man very likely wasn't a transient worker who the company just thought ditched the job. That happens. That happens in these logging camps. This guy was, at the very least, someone who had the authority to hire people. So if this job was legit and they were really driving out there and they got in an accident, why didn't anyone report this logger missing? Why didn't anyone say, this guy went to Prince George, he was supposed to hire some people, and now we don't know where he is? So now the other theory is that there was no job. I mean, he offered them a job in the middle of the night to a logging camp, leaving right away, sure, take the kids. A lot of that doesn't really make sense. But if he was luring them away under the pretense of a job, why? Was he a serial killer? Was he targeting the family because of their race? There were and are a lot of prejudiced views against First Nations families, particularly ones on welfare. Not everyone sits and asks how the family got there after generational poverty, years of abuse, substandard education at the hands of the residential schools. They're not looking at that. They only care that this family is taking something that they don't believe they deserve. So there's always that possibility. Another theory is that there was no logging job. It was rather a job in the drug trade. Whether the Jacks knew this or not, obviously that's also open to speculation. Ronnie wouldn't call his mom and tell her about an illegal job. So the logging camp explanation could have been a cover. But it actually seems very unlikely to me that the family would have taken the kids for a job like that if they knew it was an illegal activity, even if they were inclined to participate in an illegal activity. And there is absolutely no evidence of that. If it was this scenario... I suspect they were lured by the promises of an honest job and they didn't realize what it was till they got there and by then they would have seen too much. That's how I would imagine this theory would play out if this is what it was. But of course, this is speculation. One thing that is for sure is that Marlene is not going to stop until her family is found. She is not going to stop speaking truth to power about her life as a First Nations girl and woman 
She has told on the public record the worst things that have ever happened to her, and they are bad. She's done so while absolutely terrified, but she did it. She was still worried two, three years ago that the RCMP would stop giving her updates on her sister's case, but she still did it. The commissioner at this inquiry on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, Michelle Audette, told Marlene she hopes this opens doors for other women in Canada to see that if Marlene can tell her story, maybe they can tell theirs. She said Marlene was making history. So the best quote I saw that sums up the Jack case is that poverty makes people vulnerable. Sit there for a second listening to me talk. You may be hearing me over your car speakers, the car you can afford to insure, and if you had to, hopefully find the money to repair it if it broke down. Or you're listening to me on your phone. That's a $60, $70 a month bill. An average smartphone costs, what, like $500? Okay, so would you trust some guy you just met in a bar and load up your young kids into his car at 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning for a job opportunity? Most of us would be shocked that this was even an option. But for two weeks of work for both parents, meals provided, and free childcare at the camp so the kids are nearby? So I can sit here with my Starbucks latte and my iPhone X and say, I would never do that. But if I wasn't sure how I was going to feed my growing boys next week, and someone said they had two weeks of work for me that would probably earn more money than I made in the last two months, yeah, I'd probably go. Poverty made this family vulnerable. Poverty and lack of opportunity kept Marlene quiet for years. It's time to find the Jack family. Anyone with information about Ronald, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan Jack, or what happened to them, is asked to contact the Prince George RCMP at 250-561-3300. You can remain anonymous by contacting Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. These numbers will be in the show notes. 